0: Welcome to My Hard Drive Died, episode number 21, a show about hard drives, forensics, and more. I'm Jeff Halish. I'm here with none other than Scott Moulton of MyHardDriveDied.com, the uh, expert hard drive forensic uh, guru, I guess we'll call him. How are you doing, Scott?
1: I'm doing great. How are you doing?
0: I am doing fantastic. Um, excited to have you back on the show after a, uh, a year. Um and excited to hear what has been going on in the last year.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's been a year, but, uh, my life has been so exciting, I guess, and traveling. It's, it's been difficult to keep up on all these things. Uh, have done a couple of speeches, done a couple of classes in other countries and, uh, you know, it was just hard to fit everything in. So hopefully we can do this on a more frequent basis and keep people coming back.
0: Awesome. That sounds great. I'm, I'm excited again, just to have a chance to sit down and talk with you and learn what you know. And, uh, just you know, basically sit at your feet.
1: <laughs> well, well, I'm happy to help and anybody who's got questions. I mean, I, I do get like 300 emails a day, so I try to get to all of them as, as quickly as I can. But people ask me questions from from all over the world about hard drives and recovery and some forensic stuff and uh, and a lot of casework stuff because I, I'm also one of the few guys that actually testifies and, and actually deals with uh, criminal investigations as well as civil investigations. So, I I do get questions from all fields that have to do with forensics and data recovery, and I'm happy to help everybody.
0: Very cool. Now, as far as now, do you have to have any type of credentials to become, um, you know, a forensics hard drive expert that testifies and all that kind of stuff where you're at? (laughs)
1: Now, it really does matter what state you're in. And different states have different laws associated with uh, mostly PIs. So most of the time it has to do with being a private investigator in order to do this. And it's a little sad in the fact that there's not really any benefit that's added by being a private investigator. In other words, taking the classes and the education and things like that. There's, uh, There's really nothing that kind of lends itself to forensics or computers or anything at all. The word computer barely shows up. Um, And so so that's kind of the downside, but there are some states – that it does become a legal requirement, such as Michigan, where it's a, a felony to do computer forensics without a PI license or or being an employee of a PI company. Um, and then there's others, like you know, there's some various problems in like Texas and some questionable stuff in California and places. So there are some that bring that up as an issue. And then you have other strange places like Alabama that doesn't seem to have much of a restriction or anything at all except in certain cities or something along those lines. So you do kind of have to pay attention to where you're at and make sure that you know what you're doing if you're going to do forensics. And you know, forensics is something very specific which means when you're intent to deal with this this process or whatever has happened, is to go to court or for a legal purpose so it's science for a legal purpose and if that comes into play then immediately it's actually called forensics whether or not it's you know taking photos of a fallen bridge or, or it's you know working on a hard drive so so you do have to pay attention if you're going to go down that path but for data recovery it doesn't seem to be a problem at all from that standpoint uh, It's it doesn't seem to be much about protecting the data it's more about making sure that if you're going to go out and hold out a shingle that says I do forensics you're not taking some other PIs job.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, I was, uh, I, I remember when I first started listening to your show years ago, um, one of the things that I kind of looked into, I go, oh, that would be interesting. And, you know, unfortunately, I am in Michigan and uh, it's very uh, difficult here to become a PI. So you basically have to, You, I think you have to serve under somebody's uh, company for a while or, you know, in, under their license in order to even get your license, even if you go through the schooling and stuff. So...
1: Yeah, I do. uh, I do have some friends that run their own PI shops in Michigan and had to do that where they had to have an oversight, you know, oversight during this process. And it's a three year process. It's, you know, they're they're having to either work under someone or have someone else on the board of their company or some agreement for them to do this for three years. And then finally, then they can go and take the test and and do whatever. And I also believe, if I'm not mistaken, you have to have to have a CISSP. So, which is, uh, it's it it seems useless. Let's put it that way from that (laughs) standpoint. But uh, it's a a, basically a a computer uh, certification that doesn't seem to apply uh, again to any of the stuff that we do as a PI or forensics.
0: Wow! But it's something that they require you to have that certificate in order to do this type of thing in Michigan.
1: Yeah it's it's a uh, it's again it's all about the security side of it it's a certified information system security professional and you basically take this class and then take this certification and then call yourself a Mr. CIISSP. And then that applies apparently to this process or, or something. Uh, I'd have to double check on it again because I don't live in Michigan. I live in Georgia. And in right. Georgia, they do also state uh, the board of investigators has made a claim basically that you do have to be a private investigator in order to uh, do computer forensics in Georgia. And so I had a two-year apprenticeship that I had to do to acquire my PI license and do this process, and then we have certain states that we can uh, that we have reciprocity with that we can do certain things with if they originate in our state. Uh, but it does limit some of our actions from that standpoint. Like South Carolina and North Carolina have some pretty weird restrictions, and they don't make it easy for me to cross the border, even though I'm only like two hours away.
0: Okay, yeah, I can I can see that everybody's trying to protect their own, you know, type thing and kind of keep it, I'm sure try to keep it local. And I I can't imagine all the, all the red tape to go through, you know, a lot of those different things to make, you know, to figure out, you know, who can do what. And then obviously you always have lawyers that are lobbying for whether you're a good guy or a bad guy, they're lobbying in your favor to protect you. So you kind of, you definitely have to follow the rules. Wow. So that's, that's a lot of interesting stuff there. Um, Now, so over the last year, obviously, you do training courses where you teach hard drive recovery. Yes. Um, If, you know, for those that haven't listened to the show before. And, uh, you know, you basically – why don't you tell us about that process? What's what's the basic process and and what do people go through?
1: (laughs) All right. uh, So – I started doing this class. It was kind of interesting from that standpoint. I was, I I did like three to five years of presentations at DEF CON and uh, they weren't meant to be, I I never intended to start a class, never intended to do anything. It was basically what my life was like from uh, 2000 to about 2006, 2007, learning the, uh, the entire breadth of what data recovery is because I started out in the nineties doing forensics. And so when you're in the 90s, it was really hard to try to talk to a lawyer and try to explain to a lawyer why they needed forensics, why they needed to spend money on what you had, and why your evidence was important. Uh, it seems it seems pretty clear today to lawyers, but it wasn't back then, and so it was a really hard selling point. And uh, you know, you hope that you would just pick up you know 10 clients in a year. So kind okay. of to off offset that to try to get the law firms to uh, you know to be able to survive that process. Because my goal, I've owned four businesses over the last 20 years, and I owned two other businesses at the same time I started this business. So I had other ways to support it while I was starting the forensics and data recovery uh, fields, because like I said, it does take a long time to get them to buy in. And so, uh, so during that process, I'm very adamant about making sure that something survives. I don't like failure. So I uh, I kind of took on data recovery as the other experience that you could do doing some of the same tools and some of the same processes. And, and I had several drives that I had had in cases that were damaged, that uh, somebody sent me a drive that had been shot. <laughs> and so it had a bullet hole through the casing. Uh, it actually went through the actuator arm assembly and destroyed a portion of the drive. Now, it didn't hit the platters. It didn't do any damage to the platters. The platters were intact. And so uh, you know they sent it to me, and they said, well, can you do this? And so that was you know one of the first ones that I had started dealing with was around 2000, 2001. Uh, I sat down. I bought 12 or 13 of the same drive, and I sat down. And just did them over and over and over again till I could rebuild them. And I understand there wasn't a lot of tools back then to help with data recovery. Uh, there was there was one that's been around for a really long time called the PC3000, which was uh, at the time fourteen thousand dollars. So it wasn't something I was going to jump right into and get Whoa. right away. Right. Uh, but but that also did not help with uh, like head replacements and things like this, where you got a shot drive or something that's dead so uh so anyway, so kind of as the story went, I, I did this, I did it for a law firm, and then all of a sudden it was kind of like that bleeding edge between the two. I learned that there's this niche that sits between uh, data recovery and forensics, and that uh, you there's so much that has to do with the media that forensics people don't understand, and that forensics people never have to deal with because you know in the forensics arena. And the imagers and all the other equipment that comes with this, it's pretty much accepted that your drive is good when you start. It's it's you're starting with an image of the data. They don't really expect it to be dead or have a physical problem or have some other you know detrimental quality to the to the drive preventing you from getting the data. You're walking in, got a search warrant, you take what you want, you got a good copy of it, or you know if you're working for the police or something right. along those lines. So so you don't work for the police, do you? No. <laughs> so uh so so going down that path, um you know, it it was it was kind of a new experience and it was, you know, as soon as somebody had heard I dealt with this damaged drive, all of a sudden I had 10 or 12 other law firms sending me recoveries where I may not be the investigator. I may not be doing the investigation component of this particular process. And so I wrote this class uh, after doing uh, a lot of, of speeches and doing stuff at DEF CON. I was getting three, four hundred emails a day with questions and it eventually got to be where I just couldn't answer them anymore. I just, I just could not do that many emails a day with the depth of the questions. So I came up with a method to say, okay, look, I've got 80 hours of material to teach you how to do this process yourself. And, and, I, and my goal was never to hold anything back. Whatever it was, you know, I come from the hacker background, the hacker mentality, the DEF CON mentality, which is you know, this isn't a secret. None of this stuff is a, a black art that shouldn't be shared. And and I'm sure you've run into this before in other things where, you know, computer guys kind of, you know, most of the time are pretty egocentric, but they're about, oh, I'm going to maintain this one piece that nobody knows because, you know, my ego needs to feel like I'm valuable. And, uh, you know, if I know this and nobody else knows it, it's job security or something like that. Well,
0: and uh, I, yeah, I run into that in the auto industry and, and basically when a programmer comes in to program the robots from XYZ company um basically they never finish the code 100% so they leave, they leave kind of a little a little edge that only they can come in and fix and so huh. they <laughs> so you got to call in this company because our people on the floor can't fix it so it's yeah.
1: planned, planned obsolescence yep exactly <laughs> you got it right. yep. <laughs> and, uh, and and I'm sure that they don't mind you know adding a little to the bill every time that needs to happen exactly. I'm guessing right. uh, yep so uh, so that was that was kind of my plan though when I started doing this was my whole thing was uh, instead of you know being cagey about information and not telling people what they want to know I'll pretty much tell you anything. I'll tell you anything that I can possibly tell you. I'll tell you from the business side, the money side, how to to get sales all the way through every hard drive assembly, what every tool does. And I'll be honest about it. I'll tell you if this tool is crappy or this thing doesn't work. And uh, it it has caused some problems for me in the past with certain vendors. When you know I've I've had uh, access to technology and things like that, and then they hate it when I bring something out about their product. And and uh, and and I had a speech. I had a speech back in uh, January. Um, I haven't normally done a lot of public speeches about forensics, and some of the ones that I have done about forensics, I've had to make them not record uh, for various reasons. Okay. Uh, and so that they wouldn't be published, and you know it was always something to do with uh, some content that I'm covering that may be a, a legal pro- process or something. Right. But, okay. But but uh, I decided to do ShmooCon this past year, and I decided to kind of take on the difference between forensics and data recovery because I get a lot of forensics people who think they know it all about drives and they think. Why do I need to take a class that's only about drives and how to do this recovery? And then, obviously, there's others who know right away now that they don't know it all, and there's not a lot of content that uh, <laughs> that that they actually know before they actually hit that because there's just nothing covered in printed material or anything until I started doing it. Right, right. So, uh, So you know one of one of these things was just basically to make sure that I covered as much as I could give away as much as I could and then try to cover that whole topic that sits in between forensics and data recovery so they could repair a drive if something died in the field and to me it's it's i'm seeing far far more drives die in the field than used to happen i think the last 5 or 6 years Worst hard drives ever made, and I'm getting probably 15 to 25 percent that have some problem in the field, and occasionally one actually dies while you're imaging it.
0: Oh, uh, you know, I get a lot of drives in here sometimes that'll, you know, they're basically, you know, I, especially in laptops, and I think because maybe it's a mobile unit all the time, um, these drives are just they're just going. And people are like, you know, of course, people don't have backups or anything like that, you know, and it's like a lot of times I can try to pull some of the data off. But there's a lot of times that there's corrupted data or I I can't get to a lot of the stuff. So it becomes a a big mess. And then the customer's like, now what do I do? And I'm like, I, I I don't know. You know, I mean, there's, you know, there's services like like what you have. And, you know, a lot of people are like on, I don't know if I want to spend that much money. And it's like, well. Do you really want your data back? Is it that important to you or if not, then why are you you know concerned about it? but it, right. it does happen a lot and I think um we've noticed that the on the hard drives the warranties have went down. you know mm-hmm. we used to have a five year warranty on a lot of these drives are like two and some are even one if you get their generic version of even a Western digital or a Seagate from what I've seen at the right. store anyways.
1: So uh, I'll tell you a little bit about the warranty from that standpoint. It's completely worthless. Okay. Uh, so so here's the thing. In the United States, uh, and this is not true in every country, which, again, I was surprised to find out because uh, even though I travel and I've been to Australia and England, Scotland, and France, all those places, uh, there's some different rules regarding what you get as a replacement under a warranty. And so in the United States, if you have a drive that dies, they – don't have to send you a new drive they send you a refurbished drive and the refurbished drives let me tell you what they do to refurbished drives oh no <laughs> yeah so so your problem that you sent in Let's say you have a one terabyte drive and you have a bad head on that drive and it's clicking or has some problem. Well, they will do anything they can to make that drive run again, and then they'll slap a new label on top of it. So if it starts out and let's say it's a one terabyte drive and for some reason they can cut off half the heads because half of those heads are actually causing physical problem on the disk and then change the firmware so that it's a 500 gig drive instead of a one terabyte drive and stick a new label on it and send it to you. Oh no! So, so what you're getting is a unique drive that doesn't exist in the market. That if it dies, we can't even get parts for it to replace it because nothing's exactly the same. So there's some difficulties dealing with that. Or firmware has been changed or modified. Um, they do. They actually recover, and I've worked for some of the ones that are doing the refurbishing and stuff in China. And some of I've had several calls from some plants that were trying to increase the quantity they could get back out the door from the crap ones that are coming back in. And already, right now, they get sixty percent of the crap back out. Oh. So, so they're they're doing some horrific and horrible things to these drives. And what you're getting is something that acts weird, it's not quite right, things don't seem right. Uh very few of them are simple problems where it's like a firmware bug that they fixed uh in the process and now you have a working drive. It's it's always, almost always, something horrible. And later on that drive has the same problem. And of course it's you know not gonna fall under the same warranty conditions and everything else anyway. Uh, Strangely enough, certain places like Australia are protected and they actually get a brand new drive. So they actually get a real one when they send one in for warranty. So they have some value there. Of course, their drives are more expensive uh, because there is all this protection and things that happen. But uh, there are certain places that actually get a real one, but not in the United States. So anybody out there considering sending it in, it's really not worth it to do it because either shipping if you have to pay for shipping is probably worth more than the drive is and when you get it back you should never use that as the only storage place never ever use a refurbished drive as the only storage place use it as a temp drive don't use it as a primary drive use it as a trash drive or a backup drive or something but don't use it I mean even be careful it's a backup drive because you want a, a good backup but it's, it's trash. It really literally is trash, and you should not even waste the time sending it in. Um, they specifically don't want to send you a good drive.
0: That is horrible business. That, that, that Honestly, that just sickens me because I, I normally don't send in drives. I haven't, I haven't sent in a drive in a long time because, you know, drives are so inexpensive nowadays. It's just I just go get a new one, and I feel more comfortable that, hey, they've got a brand new drive. We're going to put it in. We're going to transfer the stuff over and call it a day. And then I know that, you know, that particular drives under, you know, XYZ warranty, whether it be one, two, three, you know, I don't know if any drives have five year warranties anymore, but um, at least hopefully the components in there uh, will make it so that they're, they're not going to be as hopefully they'll last And and I don't know, I could be wrong, but what I, what I tell a lot of my customers is I said, listen, if you can get past the first two years you're probably golden. That drive will probably last forever, but within the first two years, there's a good chance it's going to (laughs) die.
1: Well, well, let me kind of address that too, because there's some other problems that can happen. Some of these things that have firmware problems are things that are based on time limits or quantity of time that things been turned off and the counter exceeds a log file and causes it to crash and just weird stuff like that can happen. Um, But specifically, solid state drives so everybody i know everybody's excited about solid state drives they've been excited you know now they feel like it's kind of matured a little bit or do whatever i'm going to tell you right now all solid state drives impending failure i've said this before (laughs) and it's and i've seen it now now we're actually old enough that i'm seeing things like for instance as an example uh people are putting ssd drives in servers and workstations and they'll do them as a rate array so i see them in servers where they've bought 20 drives and they put them in a RAID array and here's your problem all those drives were made probably in the same lot when you buy them you're buying a clump of them you're not buying one at a time you're not buying different ones you're not you know varying what it is that you're buying right. so you bought all the same drives all at the same time which means they all have the same lifespan they have all the same firmware bugs so what ends up happening is when the raid when one of the drives in the raid dies that means there's a high probability that tomorrow the next one's going to go or the day after that another one's going to oh, go no. and so i am getting a huge number of drives coming in in raid arrays that are from solid state drives that they have firmware bugs or something that actually caused the problem and they fail all at once within and never make it through the rebuild cycle, never make it through anything else. You know, some of the same problems we were having with spinning disks because they age and they age about the same, you know, but the spinning disks are actually more reliable in a raid array than a solid state drive. So this speed and performance that you're gaining unless you've got a backup of it, it's not really beneficial from a standpoint of lifespan cuz raid is supposed to be about redundancy and keeping your system up.
0: Well, that's what people think anyways. <laughs>
1: Well, well, fundamentally, <laughs> fundamentally, if you have, let's say, I, d- I don't really recommend RAID 5 anymore. I'm, I'm at RAID 6 for everything at this point. But RAID 6, at least, because of the redundancy, you do have a great chance that your company isn't going to go down if it's a SAS drive. If you have a good set of SAS drives in there, you have you know a great probability you're going to last throughout the entire process. Uh, but if you've got a set of solid state disks in there for everything, you have a great chance they're all going to go.
0: Wow. Now, now, as far as the spinning disks, would you? What's the difference between a regular hard drive that you would buy at the store versus an enterprise drive like a Western Digital's Red drive?
1: So, uh, first thing is Western Digital's Red drive. My personal opinion is stay away from them. They're high rates of failure. <laughs> oh, they're 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 terrible at this point. Don't go down that path at oh. all. Um, wow. <laughs> my, my personal opinion is if you can just buy SAS drives, SAS drives are far better made, far more durable. They'll last years, you know, based on SCSI technology and where we've been before. I'm just going to tell you if you're doing something that's really important and you really want it to live, that you should be looking at SAS. And if you're outside of scope, and I know there's tons of, you know, RAIDs and SANs and stuff out there now that use just SATA drives and you can put SATA drives in. But SATA drives are made cheaply. They're made to be even, you know, some of the enterprise ones are better than uh, what you would normally get off the shelf. They use better components, they're burned in longer, better memory. I mean, understand certain things like, for instance, memory as a simple one. Um, Memory has a high rate of failure. So when you get in DRAM or you're getting things, whatever the best one is, That one was sold to, say, Cisco or somebody like that because those are the high-performance ones. Those are the ones that are doing the the proper thing. They degradate them so they could sell them in the throwaway market, basically the stuff that would be the commercial mass where you're only going to piss off one person instead of a group of people who bought Cisco routers. So understand what's mass marketed to you is normally the stuff that is a quality that's a step or a couple steps down from what you would normally see in the enterprise and the OEM markets because they don't want to piss out somebody who's buying 70,000 a day or something along those. Um, So and that's the same thing with flash drives, flash drives, what you actually get in a flash drive, unless you buy an actual brand name like SanDisk, where quality matters, and they know that somebody doesn't want to talk bad about SanDisk drives. If you're buying, you know, Kingston, PMY and some of the other stuff, they're Promiscuous. They buy their stuff from whoever's throwing it away at whatever price they can get it at, and sometimes they change later on. I know a lot of people have been hearing about some of uh, the drive manufacturers that make an SSD drives that they release a good drive, and they, you know, for six months they're releasing it at high quality. They get a lot of good reviews in the magazines. They start selling a large quantity of them, and then they start using cheaper and cheaper materials in them, and no longer are they the same rating as what they were, but they're living on the momentum from the sale from a label.
0: That is horrible, especially when we're talking about data that people don't back up. Now, just to clarify, what is a SAS drive in layman's terms?
1: Um, It is a new version of SCSI. So it's serial uh, over SCSI is basically what that technology is. So um, at at, at this point, most of the time, you're only going to see it in servers, you're, you're only seeing it in uh, high-end workstations and things that have probably a controller that can, you know, deal with it from that standpoint. You're not getting things that um, – you're not buying it normally in your standard computers or in your laptops or anything along those lines.
0: Now, could you or, or do a lot of your desktops and, you know, laptops not have the controller to run those types of drives?
1: Yeah, normally normally they don't. So, in other words – so. Uh, serial attached SCSI, when you're looking at serial attached SCSI, it has a controller that will then uh, communicate downwardly with SATA. So it's important to understand, because people see this all the time and I do get emails about it all the time, that SAS drives have a controller that can communicate with them and they can communicate with SATA drives. But you cannot use the SATA controller to talk to SAS drives. There's a slight change in the connector, so you won't even be able to plug it in anyway. But even if you had an adapter, it wouldn't change. There's a different communication protocol. There's different commands. There's different things that SCSI has, that serial-attached SCSI has, over what you have in SATA. So just understand, you could buy a high-end SAS controller and plug in a whole bunch of SATA drives and be far better off than you would be if you just had just a SATA controller or a terrible SATA controller from that standpoint to deal with ROMs or uh, to deal with RAID arrays and other stuff like that. So, uh, But they are high, high quality. They're made far better. Their equipment is far, far more lasting, but they are more expensive as well.
0: Okay. Wow. I mean, how much more expensive are they than what we buy as consumer drives?
1: Uh, it really depends on the size that you're looking at because we're not typically hitting the the same high end sizes. Uh, so it's, you know, a lot harder to go and get the newest thing that is out there, but it, you know, it's, it is typically going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of double or something. If you're actually looking at something most of the time, it really depends, uh, like a four, I think a four terabyte or so right now is going for, so something in that neighborhood. It just depends on the quality, what you're looking for, the size that you're looking for. Um, But again, the other weird thing that most people don't realize is when you're looking at a server, there's a difference between this temporary data and what you would use for your business. Most businesses – if they're doing spreadsheets and documents and email, the email is the largest thing they probably have. If they're doing a lot of photography, maybe they have some raw photos or pictures or something like that. But for business stuff, most of the time, even like, for instance, I've been in business for like 25 years now uh, with a number of different businesses. If I zipped up all of my documents and Excel spreadsheets and uh, even my financials and my programs that I use for finances and everything, that portion of my business would actually be fairly small. It would probably be 100 gigs, maybe a little bit less. My mail. On the other hand, it's going to be like 30 gigs. But uh, if I, I keep my critical stuff where it needs to be on the most expensive, most redundant devices, so that the non-critical stuff, where you've had movies or temporary things, aren't the, uh, are, they don't need that kind of storage. They don't necessarily need the high-end storage. So you can use things that are more temporary for smaller stuff, and use your brain to divide up what it is that's valuable and what's not. Right. If it's reproducible, if you can buy a movie, you don't need to worry about I ripped three movies to my drive. I mean, I, I think that's ridiculous. <laughs> People send in stuff all the time. That, you know, they've downloaded every MP3 that there is out there, and they didn't pay for it the first time, but they're going to pay me to recover it.
0: Oh, that's that's crazy. <laughs> that's crazy it, talk. It is.
1: <laughs> my, my entire library of all my MP3s and movies is on here. Please recover it for me, uh, you know
0: that I you never know, eight, listen to anyways or watch, you know, <laughs>
1: they, they, they may, I don't really know. Uh, obviously, you know, the issue is pretty clearly at $800, you know, you could buy a few of those. Oh, <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> have, have legit copies. So, yep. so is there any situation where you would recommend, um, you know, doing like an SSD in your, uh, let's just say for a residential system, because I, you know, I'm still running spinning drives. Of course, now that you've, bum me out by telling me they're basically pieces of junk. Um, I'm not feeling warm and fuzzy, but that's I've kind of stayed away from the SSDs, but I'm kind of feeling a hit on my system from being able to operate you know, whether I'm doing audio editing, you know, yep, uh, right. video editing. There's, there's
1: definitely stuff. a huge speed benefit from that standpoint that uh, today, you know, that wasn't true of, say, the first three generations of, of SSDs. You know, today, uh, it's the only way you can actually even saturate the channel is to have SSDs. So from a speed perspective, that's great. What I what I just want to make sure everybody understands, you know, it's, it's not like your iPad from a standpoint, even though your iPad is an SSD and, it, it's off a big portion of its life. And right. most of the stuff that's on an iPad isn't the source on the iPad. So in other words, it's it's a, a content uh, viewer slash um, you know, passage through. It's almost right. always also someplace else. Not that it can't be, but, you know, that again is the point with everybody having iCloud and all the other stuff is it make it easy to move your files off. Um, and, and it's off a big portion of its life, which means your SSD isn't being driven 100% like it might be in audio editing or video editing. Um, so if you're going to do this, I highly suggest you think of something in triplicate. You think of, well, if I'm going to do this on my SSD, why don't I come up with a script or something that runs nightly? Uh, there's a couple of really good programs out there that can actually help you with this, where they're going to take everything, zip it up, do something with it, sync it to your second drive, your third drive, or whatever else. So if your machine is on and it's processing, and, and if it's incremental, it only takes a few minutes every day for it to do this. So, uh, and I do have some of those that happen on my own here so that I have machines that are valuable that certain tools are actually backing up that content to a second a third and you know and I have tape and a number of other things I'm pretty anal about backup so I have like five copies of stuff everywhere
0: Wow uh, no, I thought I was pretty bad because I you know I use uh, sync back and I it basically backs up to a, a drive that I have on this system and backs up to my server my critic, well on the server it backs up everything pretty much on this machine. But my critical stuff, you know, the document type stuff, the stuff that I've created and, you know, basically couldn't live without, um, that's backed up on a second drive. And then, you know, I use Carbonite for backing up to the cloud because <laughs> you just never know.
1: Right. And and I don't want to disparage Carbonite, but uh... – I'm just going to suggest maybe you want to try another service.
0: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I,
1: again, I don't want to talk, you know, badly about all. I'm just saying, you know, from what I know and some of the things I've been involved with, I'm just going to say um, my personal preference would not be Carbonite at this point, And maybe you
0: want to use some other service. Gotcha. Okay. Maybe offline we can elaborate on that. <laughs> Yeah.
1: Uh, all right uh, you know and, and again I'm not trying to you know fr- you know I like to give information away and do things, but again, I also don't like to be sued. Um,
0: exactly. So exactly. any
1: yeah. of those things that happen and and you know speaking of that, you can always google you know who's been sued online and you can figure these things out <laughs> <laughs>
0: great. Um,
1: but uh, but yes, I, I, I do agree and always keep in mind too that you know uh, I've had clients that a tornado comes through and takes the place out. And so if all your backups are in the same place, well, then that's gone too. And um, we've had buildings, we've had customers who had uh, their building broken into on the weekend when nobody's there. They steal the server. And of course they steal everything else that's with the server, tapes and backups and everything else. So even though they had a backup, no one took it offline. Nobody took it with them. So keep all of those things in mind so that you don't have that kind of problem fire and things like that. There's so many things that I could tell you that have to do with this and moving equipment and doing things that have happened. But, um, so that's why I'm also pretty anal about it myself. So
0: gotcha. Yeah. No, it makes sense. I, you know, I, I always look at my data is if I, you know, I look at it, like you said, I use my own brain and say, can I live without that? You know, and if not, then I make sure that it's backed up a couple times. I used to even keep a, you know, a copy of my critical stuff on a, on a flash drive, but that got kind of old. So I don't do that anymore.
1: <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, you've got to have a process though, that you just, you will religiously follow whether it be, and, and some of the stuff needs to be offline so that, so for instance, I have a drive and I rotate through certain drives that are my fourth or fifth backups uh, so that they're offline and. You never know when there's going to be something like CryptoLocker or something like that that's going to attack your system, your network, or encrypt your drives. You know, make it difficult for you to get stuff, delete your files. Uh, you know, the day is always coming where we have a huge bug that's going to allow. You know, like kind of uh, like today, as we were talking earlier. Uh, you know, Bash. Just we just heard about this Bash bug. It's now in all of the Linux systems, uh, Mac OS, anything, Unix, any of the those bases that actually have a bash bug that bash is now, uh, able to do code execution basically through environment variables. I don't know a tremendous amount about it. I, I didn't you know, physically attempt it and try it, but it sounded like it was fairly easy. And it's a huge bug for everything from Apache servers all the way down. It's, um, it, And it sounds very simplistic to actually attack it and do something with it. So these are the kind of things that just open us up and so while Macs have been typically fairly safe at this point, I'm not sure how hard it is to populate this environment variable and to, to basically take over a bash script and get control.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, that's, that's not good because, you know, if you think about the server, uh, you know, the backbone of the Internet, I mean, you're looking at Linux servers are, are basically the backbone of the Internet in, in what we do um, on a daily basis. So if, if something is, is very easy to execute and mess up, uh, that could cause a whole lot of problems
1: yeah I, I would definitely say that for certain companies it's a it's gonna be a massive undertaking to update everything and make sure that they're done so like red Hat's probably really busy today uh, <laughs> oh, I would say you know goDaddy and you know a few of those where I actually have servers where there's you know silent services I'm assuming that they're pretty busy trying to figure this out and what they can do to patch things and do things and I don't know that it's I don't know that it's that hard to patch. It seemed like there was also a solution, but I don't know at this moment. It's only been like 24 hours or whatever at this point, and so haven't had a lot of time to research it or do anything because uh, I, I do recovery uh, every
0: day as well. So, wow, okay, so that keeps you that keeps you quite busy. <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, the kind of the weird thing about doing recovery is you're kind of isolated. You're like in a little island because you're disconnected from most things. You're dealing with a dead. Item. So while that's happening, and I and I'm my lab, you know, I have like 30 drives going at all times. Um, it's it, it. I'm standing in an isolated island where I never seem to uh, notice anything else till I step out and I go read something at lunch or do something.
0: Wow. So I mean, do you listen to anything while you're while you're doing these things, or you know, I mean, what do you? <laughs>
1: there is a lot of noise in there it sounds like (laughs) all day long uh i'm very in tune with fans at this moment i mean i can be i could be in an airport and i can tell you what fan it is what brand it is how many volts it is just but the, the it's the hum of the room at that amount there's not really listening to music or listening to things uh there's just too much going on
0: oh you know that makes it uh that makes it pretty interesting that um You know, these are things that we constantly have to worry about, you know, backing up our data making sure that, you know, stuff doesn't happen to the systems that everybody has in place, whether it be on the Internet or in your home. And, you know, I I think I still have a hard time telling my customers, you need to back up, you need to back up, you need to back up. And I would say at least 95 percent of them, it seems like, don't back up on a regular basis anyways. You know, I, I
1: would agree. I think, uh, I think a hundred percent of my clients don't back. <laughs>
0: <laughs> good point. <laughs> <Very> good point.
1: <laughs> it's a, uh, it's a pretty common event every day. You know, it, there's always the people who say, you know, I had a computer for, you know, 10 years in the nineties and it never had a problem. And, you know, now, you know, in this decade, everything crashes all the time and there's always a problem. And, oh. uh, There's a huge difference in how the equipment was actually made and what actually happened back then compared to what today is. So there's a lot that I can attribute and try to explain how bad things are as a whole. uh, But it's – and I think it's only going to get worse because I think this quest that everybody has to try to make the drives, uh, instead of making them more stable, to make them larger. Like let's keep going down this path and make an 8-terabyte and a 10-terabyte drive and it, it, it's a little out of hand.
0: So, okay. With that being said, what would you, in today's day and age, what size hard drive would you say for the the regular consumer to stick with?
1: Well, uh, it, you know, there is some other issues that happen after you exceed two terabytes. So, two terabyte is kind of the sweet spot, but those drives can still have problems. There still is a big after two thousand six. When drives switched to perpendicular encoding, where they changed the rotation of the head, uh, that's how we got past 500 gigs. So when you look at drives that are pre-500 gigs, you have – until they started making those perpendicular as well, which they did later on start making. So you could you could buy 100 gig today, and it would – if you can buy 100 gig uh, – it yeah, would, really. <laughs> it, 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 it may have a perpendicular uh, encoded head instead of a longitudinal head. And all that means is how the data was stored, whether or not it was stored long ways on the platter or up and down on the platter. Okay. And, and there is a huge difference in how reliable that data is pre 2006 and post 2006. And, uh, you know, I would say kind of the sweet spot still is primarily that we're you know sitting at two terabyte. Once you exceed two terabyte, there's some other things that had to happen. There's some different firmware. But there are a slew of problems in between all of those things as well. Um, I always liked Hitachi drives, you know, Hitachi had a huge problem back in the early 2000s with their Death Star drives and everything, and I think once they got past that, and then they learned from their mistakes and learned from the problems, that their drives became extremely awesome and extremely solid, and that would have been my preference for a long time to say, let's go with Hitachi's, they they died the least, had some of the least problems, had some, you know, nice things we could do to repair them um, Unfortunately, Western Digital bought them. For most people who don't know, there's only three hard drive companies left right. in the world. So you basically have you know, uh, Western Digital and, uh, and uh, Toshiba and Seagate. And those are it. And everybody else has been consumed. And so Hitachi got bought by Western Digital. Samsung was consumed by uh, Seagate. And uh, Fujitsu got consumed by Toshiba. So there's nobody left. And those are your three choices. And until last year uh, Toshiba had not been making a three and a half inch drive. And I would say you should probably think about not using that one. Um, you know, uh, kind of, uh, it looks crappy. I can't, I can't really give you any statistics yet because there's so few of those drives that have come across the board, but a three and a half inch Toshiba is probably not the best way to go. So I, you know, that would be your desktop Toshiba drives, right? Uh, which, okay. which, they previously didn't make they only made laptop drives uh and and Fujitsu actually had a line that had some problems earlier on but Fujitsu made some of the better drives that were out there but I would say as a whole right now if you can get your hands on Hitachi still until Western Digital makes some fundamental changes to it that's probably the best way to go for safety
0: wow so you said Hitachi yes Uh, still even though Western Digital owns them
1: yeah uh so Western digital owns them, but so far up till now, I haven't seen a lot of changes in remanufacturing and stuff. They may eventually do that, you know, like anybody who gets consumed eventually, they kind of merge their facilities together and merge things together. but you can tell a Western digital Hitachi drive it starts with h s t so h s t at the beginning is actually the Hitachi drive line, not the uh not the the Western digital line and there will probably be some changes. I don't know exactly what day that's going to happen or or when things happen, but I would say that's your more preferred drive at this point.
0: Okay. Unless uh, this- you go with
1: SAS. Stay with SAS, and probably most of the SAS drives, period, are really good.
0: But you've got to have the proper controller to be able to control the SAS drive.
1: And the proper money to be able to buy it.
0: Well, that's true too. Yeah, <laughs> I, you know, I guess it. De- I, I guess it all depends on what you're doing. How about these? Uh, you know, the hybrid drives. How, how are they holding up in the market? Are, are they worth? You know, I hear people say, "Oh, they're great. You get, you know, you get a little extra speed boost, and but you've still got a spinning drive." Uh, and I'm not sure which manufacturers do them at this point because I really haven't. I think Seagate was doing some. And
1: yeah, there's there's some weird things with uh with them as a whole. I. I feel comfortable with the ones that are, and and understand hybrid drives of old school versus hybrid drives of new school are completely different, and there's two types of hybrid drives, and I'll mention that in a minute, but um hybrid drives let's say that there's 32 gigs of, of flash cache on your hybrid drive most of the time uh it's partitioned it's actually partitioned into two 15 and a half gig sections and one of those is basically the part that's being used for some cache and so the other services are being done for like a page file and, and services to start up quickly so that it has instant on capability so they you know, typically, you're not looking at a lot of data loss if something bad happens. If it crashes before it can write stuff out, and you've lost that flash, then you have uh, whatever's on the spinning disk can probably still be recovered. It really depends on what the what the situation is with it when it was writing the stuff out from flash. So, I feel pretty comfortable with that scenario as a whole. Okay. Uh, but it may also be slightly misrepresented when people are looking at it, and it says 32 gigs of cache, and you know they kind of add that to the total volume of the disk, and it's not actually added to the total volume of the disk. In many cases, it's just cached, and you still have your actual disk. In its original fashion, it's just cached for that instant-on capability and for some faster speed and page file stuff. Whereas, say, Apple, as an example, so the Fusion drive that they have is a hybrid drive uh, but not in the standard meaning of what we're dealing with with Intel hybrid drives and other things that happen. Uh, They basically have a solid-state drive that they pasted onto the front, changing the LBA numbers of the beginning of the drive to the end of the drive. So, you know, you, you have a three terabyte drive and they basically paste it on 128 gigs onto the front, read, read it all the numbers so that the beginning section of the drive is actually the solid state drive. And then it mo- makes its way off onto, uh, and there's other stuff that's in there that changes how that functions, like core services and stuff. So I know uh, I don't want to get into that a lot so that people uh, kind of get mad at me or say something, you know, horrible about what it is I'm doing. But, you know, those, those are... Those are those are volume management systems that are saying, how am I going to divide this data up? What am I going to do? What has priority? Which which files should be on the solid state disk, which should be on the later disk? Um, and but, there's, but that means that that's always in use and that you actually have potential for losing that 128 gig. And if something valuable is sitting there when that dies, it is a, a larger problem than uh, what you would normally have. The other problem with that is too, in a desktop where you're looking at a fusion drive or something like that, those may be in use constantly all the time. Some people, and, and me included, leave certain machines running all the time, and they right. never turn off. They're always processing data. You probably do right. with all audio and video and other stuff. You probably have some that are just constantly doing it through the night and compressing video. Right, right. Uh, in, in those situations, you have some danger. Where a solid state drive again has a definite lifespan, you have only a certain number of rights that you can make to this disk. And I don't care what the marketing hoopla says about million rights because I think that's complete blarkey. And in, in my experience, <laughs> looking at it, looking at what comes through the door and the problems that we have, right. it's it's it's, it's it's absolutely not true. It's a, you know, engineers will tell you if you're using MLC and it's made from this component, this is how long it can write, this is what's going to happen, this is how long it can last, and nothing changes that except for you're not writing to the same place eight million times you're writing across the disk instead because software is manipulating this process so that you're writing to other locations or you've added additional space so that when you wear level it across the drive it's not always writing to the same location and that's just a trick that doesn't actually solve your disk problem because if you wrote to the same place over and over again it would still die if that makes
0: sense Yeah, no that makes perfect sense so I'm just thinking, okay, so like your your Evo 840 or 850 Pros, uh, supposedly they have a 10 year warranty on these things on these SSDs. Now, I mean, how (laughs) you're saying there's really not much of a difference whether you get the more expensive one that's going to you know supposedly has a 10 year warranty. Uh, I think it was I think I read 10 year warranty. I I could be wrong, but um, it seemed like something just out of this world. Where I was like, really, 10 years on a drive, you know? And and again, from a consumer standpoint, that piqued my interest. I go oh, well, I could spend a few more hundred dollars and, you know, have something that's going to be, you know, that's going to be better, but not really, right?
1: Well, you know, again, I don't think long term that, that, you know, there is a little bit of marketing stuff. There's a little bit of put your money where your mouth is kind of thing where, you know, people are trying to trying to, to get people to buy into it more when you're dealing with uh, certain things. Yeah. Um, I, I think, as a whole, it's more marketing stuff than it is an actual thing. Okay. Uh, until they change the technology from one type of material to another that would be more profound. Like, for instance, if if people want to look it up. Um, Racetrack memory is an example. Racetrack memory is something that may replace solid-state memory coming forward, and that's a completely different type of technology, a completely different way of storing material, and it was created by the guy who actually created the head on the current hard drives that we use. And so, you know, I have a little bit of faith in his ability here.
0: Right.
1: Whereas whereas SSD technology, the current SSD technology, has some things that have uh, been added to it and DRAM and caching and all these other things, uh, but... It has existed for over 30 years. It, it was created in 1984. So this is not like a brand new technology. And actually, if you go back and look, if any of you have a drawer full of old memory, uh, old flash drives, the original ones that were, say, you know, 120A up to, say, 2 gigs, uh, anything that's like 1 gig, 2 gigs or smaller, take one of those out. And run a timing test against the current one. Go copy files to it, see how long they take. And you will notice an amazing thing, which is going to be that the old ones are probably 20 to 40% faster. Wow. So. They used SLC, which SLC being a single layer, it was actually a faster, more robust. You could write to it 100,000 times. Whereas once we actually got to MLC, which is what most of them are using, MLC or triple bit technology now, they're storing two and three and four times the content in the same location. Uh, You may get a little bit of an impact based on how much it's writing at the same time, but generally they're slower. Generally they're going to be like 40% slower. Um, They may still dump a tremendous amount on there because now we also have the ability to use usb3 which if you're using one of these old ones uh that would be a big difference in the technology too how much cache is on the device how much is it storing before it writes but uh that didn't exist on the older uh you know one okay. versions and things like that but uh but you know there is a little bit of of things that you kind of have to look at from that standpoint from a speed standpoint but the chip itself was more robust it was a faster chip than what we typically have today
0: Wow. So we're like you said, though, things are getting it seems like everybody's getting to manufacturing cheaper and cheaper, which is causing more. I think you were saying earlier, it's causing more hard drives to, um, you know, to die faster. And, you know, that's definitely not a good thing. Um, Oh, I was going to say, too. uh, Now, you do recovery on SSDs, correct?
1: I I do do recovery on SSDs, but I want to make one thing clear for the people who are listening because everybody, when they first hear this, they think uh, they're thinking about chip off. They're thinking, well, you desolder the chips, you take them and put them in a reader, and say prior to, say, 2009, that was plausible, that was possible, that was a lot easier to do than it is today. Today, what you have now is uh, a bundle of encryption that basically is sitting on top of these levels, and encryption is there for a couple of things. It's not specifically just to stop people from reading your content. It has more to do with the erasure process, um, if you know that your chip can only read and write so many times, well, what you do to make sure that nobody can get to your data is you create a key. And so when you when you have this key, it's basically sitting there encrypted when it passes through this key. When you do a erasure on it, it doesn't have to go over every sector and erase the content. What you do is destroy the key, or you point the table to null, or you do 20 other things to stop uh, it from having to actually physically touch every sector because if it touches every sector, it's going to waste the quantity of rights that it has. So if you do a three pass on it to erase the content, you've now wasted you know maybe four or five times the the life of this particular device. Okay. So so your problem is you take off a chip and you try to read it by itself. It you it, it may not be able to do anything with it. It may be encrypted in line. You can't do things like that. And that's where forensics normally comes in because people want to know what you're hiding. Right. In data recovery, the guy knows what he had, he knows his password, and he wants to help you. So you're trying to repair something and get back what he had. And so these are two different theologies that go with this where people are always thinking the, sec- the first one that I mentioned, that that's the way Everything is done. Let's go and do the hardcore stuff and look like a scientist on TV as opposed (laughs) to repair. You know, if I'm looking at a device and I'm looking, oh, well, there's a resistor, there's, you know, a capacitor that's blown, let's fix that, Uh, steal it from another chip or do something that we can get it to work again. Or, and the most common thing really is, say, thumb drives, Uh, people throw them into their bag still in the machine, it snaps off the little connector, they crack the board or something like that. Well, I can go in there and re-solder the stuff. I mean, it's a fairly simple thing to do from that standpoint, but I'm re-soldering the stuff back to other cables and other connectors so that I can go and read it. Um, we have some distinct problems if chips are dead. So in other words, a chip, you know, gets cracked or somebody threw it in a microwave. Uh, that happens in forensics cases, believe it or not. Like the bad dude, yeah. <laughs> uh, you remember you remember that movie that was uh, like the core or something like that and it's hacked the planet and the dudes like you know, oh the,
0: yeah 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 The
1: you know the police come in and he has you know all these levers he's pulling and switches and big handles he's throwing down and you know uh, everything's burning through the drives and microwaves going off uh, well it kind of happens like that like uh, <laughs> you know uh, police are going in the door the dudes like you won't get this he throws it into the microwave he pushes the button and that chip Turns basically internally to powder. It really Ugh. is. It, it really cracks it and and completely fries the internals of the chip itself. It's wow. really, it's kind of amazing to see. If if you guys have old memory sticks, throw them in a microwave and try it, and then go out and poke at the chip, and you'll see it just kind of crumbles. Oh uh, wow!
0: <laughs> So that it's, is pretty much unrecoverable after that.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's unrecoverable. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm not trying to give uh, you know criminals ideas about how to destroy the stuff, but uh, it is it, it's unrecoverable at that point. It's pretty neat looking, but you know, wow. give it a give it a <laughs> shot. You know, people do it with CDs all the time. You know, you throw a CD, a CDR, not an aluminum CD in there. Throw a CDR in there, and it makes like a shattered earth looking thing, like it's scorched earth across the disc. Um, so. You know, it's they're pretty good ways to kind of destroy uh, some of the content. Uh, CD ROMs do it slightly like you can actually probably still recover some of the content, but you've got to get rid of some of the stuff that's on it. There's a die and you can recover some stuff, but uh, I don't want to. Yep.
0: (laughs) So now, now you now obviously you you do uh, training classes for uh, hard drive recovery. And I think when I first started listening to you years ago, you basically were you you were at the point where you would take hard drives. And I don't even think SSDs were a real big thing back then. And you were basically dismantling the hard drive and putting them back together, which obviously you told us about earlier. You basically bought 13, 14 drives and just took them apart, put them back together, put them you know, in over and over again. Now you teach people how to do that. Now, is it the same thing um, with recovery? Do you teach people the SSD portion of it or does that usually take some higher end equipment to be able to do some of that stuff?
1: So there's 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 two lines in the sand here for SSD. I include SSD in the class that I'm currently teaching. So uh, at the tail end of the class, w- what happens is I kind of filter things through. So throughout the week, we're doing mostly physical recovery, and it's much more difficult than it was like in, when I did these 12 drives uh, back in 2001 or so. Uh, there's you know platter tools to remove platters and head assemblies, and we make some of our own head combs to remove the head assemblies and replace the head assembly. And we have some other technology that we didn't have before where we can turn off and on certain heads so we can read from certain sides of the platter. Uh, so if there's damage on a certain place, we can actually physically turn off a head and skip that location and deal with the rest of the disk. Uh, and then, come back and deal with any problems or anything afterwards, so the first three days of my class are fundamentally about doing those things and every step you can do, and which tools you can actually use to control things like that, like turning off the heads and timing and other stuff. Uh, you know even in situations where you're you 're talking about where you have to do recovery for people sometimes there's there is a distinct number of things that you could do that wouldn 't even involve opening the drive where you could control timing. Uh, of how a sector reads. Uh, to kind of give you an idea, like let's let's talk about Windows for a second. When you have a problem and Windows turns around and says, oh, I can't boot or I have a problem, I can't talk to this file, CRC corruption. Um, Windows is expecting to talk to a sector in roughly under 600 milliseconds. So it's expecting to be able to communicate with it pretty fast. And when it can't, it kind of gives up and its API goes, oh, I can't do this. And you're actually talking through the software and and drivers and stuff that, that communicate with it and eventually has a timeout and says, I give up and I can't okay. talk. To it. Whereas if you had some equipment that says, you know what? I don't care how long it takes. Maybe it'll take 10,000 milliseconds. Let's just talk to that sector until... I get an answer, or it finally gives up, and you know, after 10,000 or so, we might have to move on, and then come back and deal with it later. We can also do things like move at different angles. We can come from the back of the drive. We can move forward and backwards over the sectors and control that, um, and it makes a difference. Sometimes when you're communicating with it in different angles, you actually get a read, sometimes going backwards instead of forwards, or you turn off memory, for an example. Uh, most drives have cache and cash is the same crappy crash that you probably bought for some of the other stuff. <laughs> right. and, I mean, it's made for $40 drive. I mean, what do you think it's doing? You know, They can't give you a, a $2,000 piece of you know buffered memory and put it on your drive and sell it to you for $40. bucks. let us right. talk about reality here. If you look at what's in a drive, 40 bucks. it's amazing. Oh, yeah. I mean, just, just no possibility you could... If you said, I want to glue all these pieces together, you can't even buy them and glue them together and make that. It's not possible. Like, just making a, a platter as smooth and with the material you couldn't do it uh, you know you can only do it in a mass marketed kind of situation right. so 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 when you're looking at these things there's a million things that you can do to try to uh, you know address these types of problems and then when we finally get to a thursday the fourth day of the week third third fourth day of the week uh we start talking about soldering i use a an infrared desoldering tool an infrared desoldering tool basically um is kind of the new school way of doing things you use light So you can actually, you know, kind of like a laser beam, like you can use light, you can aim it at a chip on a board and uh, with a proper amount of flux and and different things to protect the board with some tape. There's special types of tape, uh, polymad tape, captain tape, things that will protect things on the board and the resistors and everything else around it. You can, in a minute or two, remove certain chips from a board and move them to another board. So when we're repairing hard drives, there's a ROM on a lot of hard drives and we have to move this ROM. To a good board, if the board is damaged, and so it's a common thing we do every day. It takes us five minutes to do because I've got it down to a science. And I teach this in class. We actually bring an infrared to soldering unit. I make every single person do it. We all desolder a chip, re-solder a chip. If you've never soldered before in your life, it breaks the ice for you. Like it's there's some people okay. who are just scared. I'm not going to use this iron. I don't know how to use the soldering. Well, this thing makes it easy. And it's and it's like butter. Uh, When I started doing this, literally everybody can do it in 15 minutes or less. You may need a little bit of time to be an expert at it, but you can get the job done and you do it on a drive in the class and make it work. And so on Thursday, that's what we're focusing on is the soldering side of this uh, microscopes and things that you're going to need to actually do the smaller work like SSDs. Because if you're going to do SSDs, you absolutely must solder. There's no way around it. And right. so on Friday, I cover the stuff for the soldering parts, but understand it's all repair. This class currently is not about chip off and putting in a reader and trying to read it because there's no real solution that 100% works. It's a, it's a very, very difficult task to do it with a reader. I own many different types of readers, and I own many different types of technologies to do this. There is some new stuff that has just come out. There's some new stuff coming out. Um, and, and there's not really a winner right now, and there's a division between a drive, an SSD drive, running and what happens with this drive. Like, for instance, passwords and things that are locked. There is a PC, the PC3000, there's a Flash version of PC3000 and an SSD version. There's now a split. There used to be one tool, and it was just called PC3000 Flash. And now there's a split between the two. There's one that's flash, that's a reader, and there's one that's SSD. And the SSD one doesn't deal with the soldering and breaking these things and pulling chips off. It deals with the device as a whole. So I'm talking to it like I would any other drive and trying to communicate with it and trying to get around it without desoldering and fixing the problem, whereas the other one is for chip off. And, uh, and it's kind of a toss-up. It's really, really hard, and it's really difficult to get through that. But I find repair... Is so much easier than just trying to do the chip off. If I can avoid chip off,
0: so so you can teach a lot more, uh, a lot more people to do the repair aspect of it and, and fix most things without even having to do like you're saying. Actually, pull the chip off and put it in something else.
1: Well, you you will have to do that. You will have to pull the chip off and put it on another board or put it on another device or fix a capacitor, a resistor, or ROM. You may have to do any of those things, and those I teach in the class. Okay. Uh, what what what. I'm talking about with chip off means you have this reader that you put your chip in one at a time. You suck it down on you know make a copy of this chip and then you have to look at everything in hex and try to reassemble it or use a tool that can actually try to decipher you know six chips go in this order and here's what the layout is and things like that and and that's a that's a very complex part that's probably something that takes um, I tried to write a class once it was a lot easier in 2009 to do this than it is afterwards with encryption. There's some things you just can't even do you can't get by and there's only a handful of people working on these solutions and by the time they find one they've moved on and there's a new chip and there's a new thing they're coming so quickly Um, part of your problem with ssds and and chips like this is that uh you can have a label and stuff on the outside of it that makes it look exactly like another one but you have no idea what's inside of it and they can change every three six months and Two are never alike, so you end up with a situation where it's not like a hard drive where you have a label that says, these are the parts you need to go fix it and go get a donor drive, whereas on those devices, you could buy two of the same ones, and if you didn't buy them on the same day, you probably aren't going to get lucky enough that you're going to be able to read or change these pieces very easily. So so a lot of it is repair. And like I said, there's a distinction between repair and what forensics is doing where they don't have a password or somebody can't get into it. It's more like how, you know, how they claim the new iOS 8 is where you know, now they're not going to give police uh, you know, – they're not going to crack the phones for the police. So now what the police are going to be left with is, well, what can we do? Can we take these phones apart? Can we take the memory out? Can we do something with it? Is it encrypted? You know, There's a whole long list of stuff in forensics that means that where the dude won't give you his password or he won't let you into his stuff. Uh, as opposed to the guy who says, God, I had all my files on here and I know my password, but I, I can't get into it.
0: Okay. So the, okay. So you have part of the information that's a little easier to get to than somebody who's, tr- who's definitely trying to hide that information from you.
1: Yes, it's two completely different worlds, and and so if you if you have something that's encrypted like that, and you can't get by the password, and there's no crack for it, there's no weakness, you know, you're left with chip off or or trying to disassemble it and trying to take that chip, put it in a reader, trying to read something, and hope that you get some text or something on the screen you can read, and that's just not plausible uh, for a consistent working business at this moment. Uh, not for not for many. There's there's a handful, and there's there's some that can do it that are doing that side of it. But mine, luckily for me, people are, hey, yeah, here's my you know thumb drive and I know my password, but the thing is broken. The light doesn't come on. What do we do? And then we can fix those things.
0: Okay. Very good. Now, as far as it, when you look at the uh, repair process, what percentage would you say falls in the repair before you have to do something like a chip off or something like that?
1: Um, well, my goal, and especially in the class, is to teach you between 90 and 95% of the normal stuff so you can maximize your margins so you could actually go and make this a business and make a living at it uh, because that last 5% is more like R&D. That last 4 and 5% okay. of all the stuff you do is all the unusual and the weird stuff that it's going to take a tremendous amount of time to solve, but uh, you know, it might make you the least money or cost you the most to do. Okay. And and so um, my class focuses on on in both categories of the soldering, the repair, the drives of the ninety five percent. Now I do that last five percent, and I struggle with it. And like I said, you know, you win some, you lose some. But it also keeps me hot, keeps me trained, keeps me in the seat of being able to to explain to people how things work. you know, I don't know everything. There's nobody out there who's doing this uh, that knows everything. There's a lot of really, really smart people. There's, you know, 200 extremely smart people in the world who do this stuff and really know their stuff maybe beyond even what I'm doing. There's there's just not a lot who are teaching it or who have, who want to teach it, who want people to know the secrets, or that can speak to someone in, in, a, in a technical manner and actually uh, be able to describe their life, or that can, with NDAs and things like that, actually go outside their company and do things. So I'm just trying to break that mold from that standpoint and say, you know, look, guys, uh, if you're in a police department and you can't send this out because it's got child porn on it, well, you have a... You know, 95% of these drives you can fix yourself. And if no right. one else is tampered with it, this is what you can do. And so you police departments, you, uh, you know, schools, technology centers, things like that, uh, companies, you guys can fix your own stuff internally and not have to spend $3,000 sending it out when my class is only $3,500. And, and people bring broken drives to class and do them in class with my help, too. So we've done recoveries in class where they didn't have to send it out and get – you know, a $3,000 recovery, and it made it worth it for them to be in the class and do that.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I can see a lot of the things, even from the standpoint of, you know, number one, 95% is awesome. Um, Number two, when you're talking about, you know, when you first started talking about this, and you're talking about taking, you know, doing a lot of things with the drive, even before pulling it apart which is probably, you know, a lot of stuff I deal with, you know, you, you throw it in a little toaster, uh, you know, connected to your computer or, you know, you, you hook it directly to the motherboard depending, you know, sometimes one way works better than the other. Um, you might pull some of the data off of it, but it's not, it's kind of like just throwing a bunch of stuff at the wall and hoping that, well, that works.
1: <laughs> well, and, and, and to be fair, and I'm not trying to, you know, be belligerent here about it. Uh, you're doing it kind of without the knowledge of How those sectors are working and what's happening in the media and what that problem is that's actually there and you can make it worse. And so, you know, with a little bit of that, from that standpoint, you might be 100 times better. There's a time where you only have one or two good shots at a drive. And in that process, it may be wasted. And I'll give you a quick example. almost everybody has downloaded a data recovery program from the internet and tried to recover something. And most of the time, what it does when you start it up is it says, okay, point at the drive and scan it. And then it scans the drive. As it crawls through your drive, you'll see a little thermometer bar or something happening. And then at the very end, it will present a tree to you. And it'll say, here's your your files, here's your recovery, here's the stuff I can get. Well, here's a horrible thing. In the process of that happening, it touched every sector of the drive to build the tree. It touches the MFT entry. Some of them do, do it quick, only do the MFT. Some did actually say excessive or whatever. They scan every single sector of the drive. And you can be more intelligent about what you're doing because at that point, you've actually cop. You've touched every sector without copying it. So you're in a situation where if you had copied it, you could actually have built the tree and have a safe recovery. Because if you touch every sector on the drive, and you don't get a copy of it, you are a result of this tree may be completely worthless at the end because it may have done damage, something else may have happened, and you have not actually done anything that's valuable to build this tree, which is unnecessary because most of the time, the tree isn't exactly where you need to go to get what it is that you're looking for. Right. And so, so I'm trying to be intelligent about that process and break people because this is how forensics people and stuff do this all the time. And I want to break them from this and say, you know, Let's go about this a completely different way and let's forget what you think you know and start over here and start thinking about what are the smart ways? What is it that actually keeps track of where this is and how do you find this? You don't need the Windows system folder at this moment. Maybe you want the user's My Pictures folder. Where is that? And the tools that can do that with recovery technology so you can get straight to that spot.
0: No, that makes perfect sense. One thing I've noticed is, you know, being in the computer repair field, and working on machines all the time is the more I learn, the dumber I feel because there, there's always more things to learn out there. And I, in and, and I'm always one of those, um, you know, computer repair guys that if I can learn a better, more, um, you know, methodology type way of doing something, I'd rather do that than sit there and just throw mud at a wall and just hope that something works. So, um, yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm all, I, I agree. I think there's a lot, if I had a better understanding of hard drives, you know, that would, that would make my process for recovering the data from a drive yep. uh, much more fluid and, and much, you know, at least I could think about it the way it's supposed to be instead of just going, well, let's see if this works. And like you said, if you, yep. if you mess it up and it, you know, it, what do we tell our customers? We always tell them, well, yeah, drive won't, drive won't spin, but drive won't yep. run, whatever. It's the, it's toast.
1: You know, it's it's amazing because there's something that changes in your mind as you know some of this stuff, and it's kind of like, uh, you know, the issue is. When you're seeing something happen on your computer, like when I go to save a file, most people just think, "Oh, okay, I'm saving a file. Here's my folder. I'm saving a file." In my mind, I actually go through. All right, so there's the, NTF, uh, for the NTFS format. Here's the MFT entry. I see it in my mind, creating the entry for the directory structure for and how that structure happens, and know that it's two sectors. Like my brain does that all the time. It's kind of like you know. Um, You know, uh, uh, Mark Twain said he used to look at the water, he used to stand on the edge of the river and see how beautiful it was. Then he became a steamboat captain, and as he's riding down it, all you see now is he can see the waves that make the sandbars, and he knows where the danger is. And now he can no longer stand on the side and see how beautiful it is. All he sees is this other stuff. And so that's kind of how I feel and, as, and I hear that from people after they take the class and they go do this, they have such a more defined understanding of, because I actually get into that, I get into NTFS, how MFT entries are created, where, how does it check it? How does it know what, you know, what does disk do when it deletes a file and says that you're corrupt and does these things? And what are the key entries that are inside of this that, that say that? And uh, it, it makes a huge difference in forensics and, and in your, even in just other things that you do with computers, you'll... Know the structure, and you'll know where it's touching, and you'll know where the head of the drive is, and you'll know its physical location on the disk. You'll know is it the outside edge, is it the inside edge, is it in the middle? You know, it just kind of, and it gets me excited. You can tell.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. No, you're you're definitely passionate about what you what you uh, bring to the table, uh, and and what you're able to teach people, and that that to me just is amazing in itself. That's why uh, you know. Well, we're, we're at about an hour and 15 minutes. Um, I just, I really appreciate you coming back out and sharing all this stuff with, with us today and just all the bunches of information that, uh, you know, you answered a lot of questions for me and I definitely encourage any, anybody to, uh, bet, you know, check, uh, you know, Scott's, uh, you know, go to myharddrivedied.com and, uh, what was your other website? Forensic Strategy uh, Services? Yeah.
1: It's uh, forensicstrategy.com. The company's name is Forensic Strategy Service, but forensicstrategy.com, and okay. I have a new fancy website for dealing with uh, <laughs> forensics cases and uh, anything that has a legal thing. It's, you know Surprisingly, one of the things I get a lot these days is uh, insurance arguments, people who uh, have claims and they've lost data, insurance companies are fighting. Like Those are the kind of things that would fall under this category as opposed to just a standard recovery.
0: Okay, and then if people want to find more out, more out about your uh, classes, where would they go for that?
1: Um, on my hard drive died, I keep everything. Uh, the class schedule is up front, so like I have a class coming up in November in Washington D.C., and I have a class in Australia in December uh two weeks before christmas and i keep all the stuff up and do the updates there and then there's actually a class page that tells you about it but you know there's also a presentation page where people can go and see free presentations i've got like 80 hours of material that i've produced that tells people and and, and it's not fluff it's it's all the real stuff like how you do head replacements what you do like there's a whole ton of that material out there and it's all linked off my presentation page and then goes to youtube as well so you can see everything and presentations
0: i did Oh very cool. No, that's great. Well again, Scott, I appreciate you coming out on the show and uh, I'm hoping that we can make this a uh, you know a regular podcast again and and uh, you know I just love hearing the information that you bring to the table. It's just it it boggles my mind sometimes
1: <laughs> Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure being here.
0: Great. All right uh, if you guys have any questions uh, for Scott, obviously you can go to his website and uh, he's got a contact page there. You can get a hold of him. Scott, do you still have your uh, Twitter handle?
1: Uh yeah, so everything's done by my, my full name, which is Scott A. Moulton. So Scott A M O U L T O N. So and but if you hit my my hard drive dot in the presentation page, it has links to all that.
0: Gotcha. All right. Very cool. So if you guys want to ask Scott a question, please you know feel free to go there. And uh, you know, he now obviously he gets a lot of emails. Um it, another way you can contact us for the show is if you have any questions, email us at mhd at podnuts.com. And then I can get those forwarded to Scott, and uh, or we can talk about them on the show in, in the future. So if you guys have any questions about hard drives, forensics, or any of that type of stuff, feel free to uh, to email us. And if you guys want to leave a voicemail, uh, we can play those on the show too. You just call one 697 162 And you guys can also help support the PodNets Network the next time you're shopping at Amazon. Go to podnets.com slash Amazon. And I want to thank everyone for listening and subscribing to the show. We'll see you next time on My Hard Drive Died. Music provided by Steve Cherubino at SteveCherubino.com.